0: Uh, I am David Jones, Well, if this is your first time, uh, I am not Iron Kim, I am DJ. So, uh, we are continuing our series on the Ten Commandments this morning, a series we're calling the Ten Words, and so I'd like to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word.
1: Our readings this morning are from Exodus 20 and Matthew 5. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? You shall not murder. And from Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let us pray together. God, sometimes your, your words are hard, but they are meant to create soft hearts. So, Lord, would you be at work this morning to soften our hearts and to reshape them into the likeness of your Son? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We are now uh, six weeks in uh, to our series on the 10 words. And uh, if you haven't been here or you've already forgotten uh, everything we've talked about, uh, quick review. Uh, These 10 words, 10 commandments are an expression of God's will for his people. So if you're someone who wants to know God's will for your life, a great place to begin is by looking at his commands. But we've noted all along that these 10 words actually don't begin with a command. They begin with a declaration. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of slavery, who rescued you from Egypt. And that's an important context for receiving the words that we hear in then these ten statements. And uh, one of my friends uh, put it like this. It's as if God is saying to a group of ex-slaves who have been in slavery longer than America has existed. Think about that for a second. He's saying, when you come into the land that I am giving you. And you walk on the grass that will be yours and not someone else's grass. And when you drink the wine that you have made for yourselves, not for someone else. and When you eat your food, and when you lay down to rest in your house. Don't attack one another. Don't stab one another. Don't strangle one another. Don't assault one another. Don't harm one another one another. Or as our translation puts it, do not murder. Now, I think when we hear this command, we have kind of two responses. Uh, one response is we say, do we, do we really need to be told this? Do not murder. I mean, isn't this kind of obvious to everyone by now? But as Sigmund Freud pointed out in the quote that scrolled on the screen behind you as you were coming in, um, actually, history verifies apparently we aren't getting it. And the other response is, ah, but finally, a command I know I haven't broken. Yeah, you're going to get me on covet. And after iron explains what it means to have no other gods before me, yeah, okay, I'm guilty. But murder? Not a chance. But when you actually begin to see how this works its way through the story of Scripture, and you recognize that the Apostle John connects this command to hatred in our hearts and neglect of the poor... That James actually connects the themes here with how we use our words and the damage we do to people made in God's image. And then when we look at what Jesus does, when he takes this command to the depths of our soul, you best slow your roll if you think that you don't need to hear this. If we're going to take these words seriously, we need to grapple with both the breadth and the depth of this command. And let me say up front, this is going to get uncomfortable. But I want you to remember that we're here to gather around good news. And the thing about our hearts is we won't ever run to the good news unless we've wrestled with the bad news about ourselves. So I want to begin by looking at the breadth of this command. When you look at it, it it's, it's very short in English. You shall not murder. It's even shorter in Hebrew. It's only two words. And older translations uh, used to, if you go look at, um, you know, translations 50 years ago or whatever, they'll they'll say, do not kill. And uh, that's, that's too broad. Because this isn't talking about killing of animals. Sorry, vegetarians. It's not what this command is about. Nor is this talking about war. Sorry, pacifists. That's not what this is talking about. Nor is this talking about self-defense or capital punishment, although this probably deserves some pretty careful moral and ethical reflection. And it has some bearing on those things. But if you look at newer translations, like the one we're looking at, they say do not murder. And that's much better, but also, also potentially too narrow. Because when you and I think of murder, we think of that cold-blooded crime. But the Hebrew word, ratsah, is also used in cases of accidental deaths that result from negligence or carelessness. And, uh, you know, by the way, it's not like this command is saying, you know, it's okay to beat and maim and abuse and harass and hurt people as long as you don't actually kill them. Just stop short of that. This command has a breadth that goes much wider in our lives than we realize Let me put it this way, if uh, the Ten Commandments were given in our day, they would likely not be written on stone, they'd be written on an iPad. And uh, each command would be a hyperlink. And when you clicked on it, it would take you to anchor texts. One such anchor text in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is Genesis 1, that God made man and woman in his image. Distinct from all other forms of life, human life is sacred, is special, it's precious. We're not authorized to dispose of it on our own terms. We are not sovereign over determining its end. And yes, there are exceptions. The awful realities of war in a post-fall world. Laying down your life to save someone else's life in an act of self-sacrifice. But the taking of life is always a sad and grievous reality. God forbids us taking life and death into our own hands, as if it is just ours to take on our own terms. Now, there's a flip side to this. Another anchor text that the hyperlink would take you to would be Leviticus 19, where we read the words, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul actually links do not murder and love your neighbor together. We heard this earlier in our liturgy in Romans 13. And he actually takes a bundle of these laws and says they're summed up in one phrase. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. So though this command is stated negatively, like all the commands, it's meant to be turned inside out and viewed positively as expressing God's. Beautiful life that he wants his people to live. So do not murder is also a call to guard and protect life because it is sacred. Why is it sacred? Because human beings are made in the image of God. Guard and protect what is sacred. That is the duty of love. So there is a prohibition about taking life. And there is an obligation to guard and protect it in love. Because human life is sacred and it is not ours to take on our terms. So let's think for a moment about ways we might break this command. You can break this command through acts of commission. Actually taking someone's life. And by the way, we've had people in this congregation over the years who have done that. Or you can break it through negligence or carelessness causing the loss of life. Drunk driving. Reckless driving. But you could also break it through acts of omission. Failing to guard and protect life when it's in your circle of responsibility. And by the way, uh, every society recognizes this. Every modern society. That's why they have speed limits and FDA regulations to make sure people aren't carelessly poisoning each other. It's a duty to guard and protect life. And the vision that God gives for his people is that all persons regardless of social status or rank or cultural influence or importance or gender or disability or health, all are sacred. You might say, how do you define sacred? You know, sacred is is hard to define, but as theologian Karl Barth put it, he said, you know something is sacred when it inspires reverence because you want to treat it with carefulness and care. You feel this in those moments when someone's life is near its end. It's agonizing. It's like you know you're on holy ground at that moment. And sometimes you have to wrestle deeply with questions about whether you are saving a life through medical intervention or just prolonging death. I've had to be present when a dear friend made the awful, terrible, unbearably sad decision to end life support for his wife. I'll never forget it. It makes your your body tremble and it makes your heart quake because life is sacred. And you know that ultimate decisions like this don't ultimately belong in your hands. And when some measure of responsibility falls in them in those rare and heavy moments, you feel the weight. When you see the connection between the sovereign and loving authority of God and the sacredness of human life, you actually begin to see how wide this command stretches into our lives. Think about suicide for a moment. That, that's a topic that uh, here in Palo Alto uh, has gotten a lot of attention over the years. And it's been a great concern. You, there was a rash of suicides years ago. And we actually, as a church, reached out to several high schools in the area, offering our support and help in any way Uh, That we could because we know life is sacred and this is terrifying. The sixth commandment forbids not only the taking the life of others. But taking our own lives. Because life is not ours to take on our own terms. And God says, no, your life is precious to me. This isn't a moment for moral condemnation. it's, It's a moment for grief. Not only for the act or the attempted act, but for the conditions that make it thinkable and doable. For really to obey the sixth commandment, we have to care about the mental and emotional and psychological burdens that people carry that would make them consider this. Or how about this one? Police brutality or race-based hate crimes how easy it is for us to get sidetracked into partisan politics on the topic and just miss the horror of the way human beings treat one another sometimes. We should grieve, not only for the act, but for the conditions that make the act thinkable and doable. And loving our neighbor means doing what we can to help address this. You know, in in our uh, political climate, it's easy to just drift into... Partisan policies and miss the principles that are to ground us and it's interesting that in the debate about abortion one side privileges the right to have sovereignty over one's body but in the debate about gun control another side privileges the right to bear arms and those concerns are not illegitimate but shouldn't the responsibility to guard and protect life come first. Shouldn't it be privileged above all our other rights? Because without guarding and protecting life, there are no other rights that are even possible. And I am not making a statement about political policy. I'm making a statement about ethical principle that God has given us that should be taken with the utmost seriousness. You know, as a as a church, um, I have conversations all the time with people and uh, try to try to explain as best I can that as a church. We don't want to be driven by cultural issues so that life in this community feels like just a running commentary on the latest headlines. We want to be led by God's word. We want him to lead us by his word. But when he speaks in his word on matters that touch cultural issues, we must listen. And I want to take one of the most emotionally volatile ones and dig into it for a moment. I want to talk about abortion. And I will confess to you that I am nervous about talking about this. But I'm not nervous because I'm I'm afraid of saying what I believe to be the truth. I am nervous because I am afraid I won't say it well or I won't say enough. And everybody knows that In our cultural moment, our public discourse is so shrill and so polarized that it feels like if you just shuffle your foot wrong, then suddenly you're put into this camp or that camp that maybe you don't want to be identified with. But even more important to me, I know that this subject touches the lives of many people in this room. I know some of your stories, and I know that there are others. And I just want to ask you to just hang in there with me. Hang in there with me because we are ultimately here to gather around good news. And as a friend of mine puts it, if the command cuts and it is God doing the cutting, it's a healing cut. It's like the incision of a surgeon who's trying to get out the cancer. The sixth commandment in its breath, breadth is a prohibition on taking the life of the unborn. Yes, there are very rare and very sad exceptions. Ectopic pregnancies, for example. But the termination of the life of an unborn child should grieve us. And so should the conditions that make it thinkable and doable. Both deserve our tears. Both deserve our attention and our care and our action because life is is precious, and it must be guarded and protected from womb to tomb. Now, I I know without, without a doubt there are complicated aspects and incredibly difficult scenarios related to this. They deserve meaningful conversations. But the bias towards life looms large, always. And we are called to protect the vulnerable at every stage of life. Tish Harrison Warren, who is an Anglican priest in the Anglican Church in North America, wrote an editorial about a year ago where she said this, Human dignity applies equally to women, people of color, those with disabilities, the elderly, and the very young. Even those yet to be born. And when you start to distinguish between human life and personhood... Bad things happen. And you can call all of history as a witness. Now I mentioned the conditions in which this action becomes thinkable and doable. If Christians don't care equally about the life of the born. In all its varieties. Mother and child. Father and all involved. And all the circumstances. Complicated circumstances. We're at best inconsistent. And at worst hypocritical. Uh, There's uh, an old uh, Methodist uh, theologian by the name of William Willimon. And uh, years ago, Willimon used to teach at Duke Divinity School. But years ago, he told this story about a group of ministers who were debating the morality of abortion. One of the ministers argued that abortion was justified, for example, in cases like a teenage girl. who couldn't possibly be expected to know how to raise a kid or have the resources necessary. But a black minister of a very large African American church said, We have young girls who have this happen to them all the time. I have a 14 year old in my congregation who had a baby last month. And so another minister said, Do you really think that she is capable of raising a baby? And the pastor replied, Of course not. No 14 year old is capable of raising a baby. For that matter, not many 30 year olds are qualified. A baby's too difficult for any one person to raise by herself. And so another question was posed to this pastor. So what do you do with babies? And he said, well, we baptize them so that we all raise them together. In the case of that 14-year-old, we have given her baby to a retired couple who have enough time and enough wisdom to raise children. Then they can raise the mama along with her baby. That's the way we do it. Now, I want you to notice something here. There's nothing about political policy, although that's important. More important is principle. Who God has called us to be, who God has called us to care for, and what God has called us to do. Christians must take responsibility for the ways in which we have failed to be the kind of community that God has called us to be. Caring for the widow and the orphan and the battered woman and the economically destitute. All of that is part of the breadth of the sixth commandment. Now, here's something really encouraging. When Christians have taken this to heart, this call to guard and protect life because it is sacred, you find some of the most spectacular things in history. The early Christians went around collecting babies abandoned by others. Happened in the first two centuries quite frequently. They created food rosters for the hungry and starving in the third century. They established hostels for the homeless throughout the Roman Empire in the fourth century. European monasteries provided accommodations and workshops and schools and almshouses in the ninth century for those who had no access. There's a famous law code in the twelfth century written by Gratian, theologian. It was called the Decretum, and it insisted the rich had a moral obligation to assist the poor. William Wilberforce, you know his name, his passion to end the transatlantic slave trade in the, uh, in the late 18th century and early 19th century, it was animated by his concern for the dignity of image bearers. And the human rights campaign in the 20th century was rooted in these same theological convictions. David Skeel, uh, I don't think he's a Christian, but he's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania's law school, wrote, the belief that each one of us is made in the image of God has been the inspiration for numerous human rights initiatives throughout history, even though the religious language got omitted. Look, when you see the sixth commandment hyperlinked to the sacredness of image bearers, you begin to see how wide of a reach it has in our lives. Here is its breadth. But if we're going to fully take it in, we also have to see its depth. The second passage you have printed for you are the words of Jesus from his famous Sermon on the Mount. And, and then they're like a punch in the gut because Jesus lumps together murderers and angry people. You have heard that it was said, You shall not murder, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. To judgment, And suddenly you realize this command went from something that hardly anyone thinks they have broken to something everyone knows they have broken. And while there is such a thing as righteous anger, most of ours is not. Jesus takes this command and he applies it to the depths of our hearts. And this is what he says. Anger is the seed of murder. The word Jesus uses here for anger is the Greek word orge. And it describes this orientation of contempt and bitterness and resentment. It's used in the present tense. So it's not talking about just a one-time angry outburst. It's talking about a long-term hostility to someone. You know what this is getting at? The smoldering resentment. The nursing a grudge. And Jesus says, when this takes root in your life, the seed of murder... Is in your heart. Now, now the problem for most of us is we actually don't think this is a real problem. And there were some memes going around uh, a few years ago. One of them was uh, Hank Hill from King of the Hill, that that show. And uh, it was a quote from Hank Hill that said, I don't have a problem with anger, I have a problem with idiots. And then there was one shortly around the same time, another meme that said, I don't need anger management classes, you need shut the bleep up classes. Our default mode is to see our anger as always and entirely someone else's fault. How do we say it? You made me so angry. But think about the anger that we often feel. There's the anger that comes from our pride. Someone snubbed us, overlooked us, right? Didn't give us the attention or the respect that we think we deserve or got in our way. There's the anger of envy. Someone has something that you want or life is going way better for them. And then you think they deserve. And it's not going as well for you as you think you deserve. And then there's that anger of hatred. where someone really did wrong you. But your response is all out of proportion to the offense. They flicked your nose. You stabbed them in the throat. And the scary thing about anger is you feel so right in feeling you were wronged. Uh, slate.com ran a piece in, in uh, 2014 called The Year of Outrage. I can't even imagine uh, if they were to try to do that now. But that, that's where the, one of the articles coined the term outrage porn. This nasty, demeaning speech that is supposedly okay because of indignation. And it says, we love the thrill of being angry at another person without any personal accountability or commitment to them as a human being. We're addicted to this. And Jesus says that is a sign of a murderous heart. Now, some of us might say, sure, look, I may be angry, okay? You know, hot got me, but I would never murder. And on on the one hand, there's a certain naivete about this. Because if it is the seed of murder, then sometimes the difference between an actual murder and you is just the conditions. When we were doing our Exploring Christianity group for people who don't yet believe... Uh, a few few months ago, one of the guys was mentioning the murder of someone that was a a love triangle of jealousy and envy. And instead of saying, gosh, would you look at that? How horrible. He said, that's frightening to me. What would I do in a situation like this, in circumstances like that? And that showed a sensitivity to his heart that sometimes Christians don't have. But on the other hand, To say, yeah, I'm angry, but I would never murder, is actually to completely miss Jesus' point. Because God's concerns go deeper than keeping you from committing homicide. He wants to heal our hearts. And the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about has enormous destructive power. It's murder in seed form. And what is its fruit? Well, its fruit is ravaged relationships. Jesus draws our attention to our murderous words. He says, when you insult someone, and the Greek word is raka, it's a term of abuse. It's like verbal bullying that questions the mental competence of someone. Like, idiot. And I'm just going to confess to you, this week, as I've been studying this passage, um, I have caught myself several times in the car, on the road, where someone is doing something dumb in front of me. And I'm like, idiot! And I'm like... Jesus speaks right to this, and I've got to preach about this. And you know what? It happened this morning, and I said it out loud. <laughs> but questioning the mental competence. But he also says calling someone a fool, which is to question the moral competence of another person. What is Jesus is getting at? Is this seed of murder begins to manifest itself in dehumanizing speech towards others. And it does have murderous effects. Some of you know what it's like to be on the receiving end of murderous words. You grew up in a home where these kind of words, they were like daggers to your soul over and over and over again. Or you've been in relationships where angry words have slain you a thousand times. The old playground ditty, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. is just a big, fat lie. Others of you, you have ninja-like skills in dishing out murderous words towards others. Some of your friendships are no more because of things you said. You literally killed it. Some of your work relationships are dead because angry words murdered them. Murderous hearts murder relationships and it often begins with words. That's Jesus' point. How many marriages have ended because of 20 years of angry words? How many families have rotted because of a history of shaming and criticizing with contempt? How many relationships have bled to death because of verbal homicide? Nursing anger and name-calling are not innocuous. They destroy community and they ravage relationships. And Jesus gives a serious warning. He says, it will be judged. And he gives this escalating deal from the lower courts to the superior courts, the council, to the city dump, which is a picture of final judgment. And it is a warning that is given in love. That contempt and bitterness and resentment are ruinous. And they ruin relationships. And we could also add, they ruin you. Anne Lamott says that bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting someone else to die. Is there a seed of murderous rage in your heart? Well, one way to get at that is to ask yourself, who do I want out of my life? Because that's effectively what murder is, the decision to remove you. And let me be very clear for a second. I am not talking about boundaries. Boundaries at their best are about protecting life from abuse and danger. And that is actually a keep, that's a keeping of the sixth commandment. I'm talking about the hatred and disdain that we have for people who just annoy us or we find difficult or irritating or we disagree with theologically or politically or maybe even have actually hurt us in some unintended way and our hearts cry out. I want you gone. And you treat them with contempt. It's the seed of murder and it's the violation of the sixth commandment. I have a friend who used to be a campus minister at another university. And uh, years ago he was working on his garden in his backyard. His backyard is pretty private, surrounded by tall hedges so neighbors can't see in. And he finished up his work and he went in to take a shower. He took his clothes off, turned on the water and the water pressure was really low. So he realized I left the hose on in the backyard. So he runs out the back door, no clothes on, turns the hose off turns around to go back in and realizes the door is locked. He's locked himself out with no clothes on. He runs to his tool shed, hoping to find something there to cover him. Old gym shorts, rags, nothing. The only thing he can find is this little strip of painter's tarp. And it's plastic and it's see-through. Okay? So he wraps it around himself, makes basically a man diaper... And, he, and he's like, the front door is unlocked. I'm going to have to make a run for it. But the problem is that his house is on a busy street. There's lots of cars, elderly people taking walks, you know, all the thing. But it's the only way in. And so shamefully, as quickly as possible, he dashes in his man diaper into the front yard and through his front door into his house. And now, maybe you've never been stuck outside naked in public, or maybe you have, we should probably talk about that sometime, but, but we have all felt morally and spiritually what he felt at that moment. That being exposed is one of our greatest nightmares. The threat of being exposed terrifies us. And maybe that's how you feel right now. Maybe you've had your heart exposed by God's word and it's terrifying. You know, that's one of the things the law is supposed to do. But there is a place to run For refuge. And not only for refuge, but for healing. You know, it's remarkable to me how many of the key figures in the Bible were actually actual murderers. King David orchestrated the death of Uriah the Hittite. Saul, before he became Paul, was involved in the arrest and killing of Christians. And yet somehow, God got a hold of them and changed their hearts. And how did he do it? It was through the promise of his grace that culminated in the murder of his son. Jesus was killed at the hands of lawless men, Peter says in his speech on that great day of Pentecost. That he bore the hatred and the rage and the insult and the disgust thrown at him. He was treated with contempt and disdain. And it all happened, Peter tells us, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That God ordained to permit what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. What was that? In God's plan, the murder of his son led to the salvation of the world. It's like God dove into the deepest, darkest, and most hopeless place and comes back up with beauty and life. That Jesus' awful death is an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all who run to him for refuge. And when you do that, two things are going to happen in your life. When you find refuge in Christ, you actually can take responsibility for the wrongs that you have done. Jesus goes on in this passage to say, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that someone has something against you. By the way, that's not simply that they're displeased with you, but you've actually wronged them. He says, go and make it right. This can take time. It's hard work. And it may not be possible because you don't control how the other person responds. But you have to pursue it. And I would say you get to pursue it. Because when you found refuge in Christ, you don't have to protect and defend your honor or pretend that you're better than you are. And when you find refuge in Christ, you can actually find healing for your murderous heart. We do not have to be hateful people. We can actually become loving people. How does that happen? The same way we become murderous people. Through seeds in our heart. The gospel is like a seed that you sow in your heart again and again and again. And as it grows, it actually strangles out the weeds of hatred and disdain and bitterness and resentment. Even when it comes from things that have been done to us. It opens us up to the possibility of reconciliation. And it ends the cycle of contempt that ravages and ruins relationships. Paul writes in Romans 10... Four, that Christ is the end of the law. And the word, the word he uses doesn't mean he's the termination of the law. Like, all right, like that was then, this is now. It's tell us. Christ is the destination of the law. The law lays down the tracks of the good life, but it soon becomes obvious that we need a rescue greater than the rescue from Egypt. The law exposes our need. We need a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior we need. The law leads us by the hand to Jesus Christ. The one who is Lord of life laid down his life for murderous hearts like yours and mine. This is the one in whose hands we can trust matters of life and death. This is the one who can change us from bitter and resentful people into people who love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would overcome all the weakness of the speaker and that you would apply the seed of your word to our hearts. Um, We need your grace. We need your grace to heal us. We need your grace to forgive us. We need your grace to make us new. So would you wash us in that grace this morning? Would you form us and shape us as your people who treat others with the reverence they deserve, who regard life as sacred, who submit to your loving and sovereign authority, and who begin to know how to move out into the world with care and concern for people who deeply need it. And would you minister to us, Lord, as people who are also in great and deep need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.